Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning, good morning. I've been off air for a while and out of the country on a trip, and I'm back, and I'm raring to go for the rest of the year here. So, um, first of all, before we get even started, I'd like to remind everybody that there is a, there's a couple of conferences coming up that are really important. One is the uh, Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, which is going to be, um, let's see, <laughs> September thir- 13th through the 15th in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado. If you haven't been to Breckenridge, you need to sign up for this conference. They've got some great speakers. And then uh, in New York in, uh, let's see, in November, November 8th to the 11th, New York City, downtown Manhattan, the National Investigators Conference. There is a pre-conference seminar on the um, 7th. It's Brandon Perrin. If you don't know Brandon Perrin, he's a certified criminal defense investigator. He has a great course. Um, So it's an all-day seminar for him. And then there's a post-conference seminar, which is on on Sunday, November 11th, put on by Steve Rombaum, who is one of the um, sponsors or, or coordinators of the conference, called Hardcore Aided Investigation, Open Source Intelligence, and Digital Officers Safety. So that's going to be really exciting to sign up for it. The hotel rates are fabulous for New York City and uh, I think it's Hotel Pennsylvania. So look that up. It's called, if you look it up on the Internet, it's called the uh, 2018 New York City Investigators Super Conference. So there you go. And I'm very excited to welcome my guest today. Um, just so happens that we're he and I are both going to be speaking at the uh, Professional Investigators Conference in Colorado in September. Sam Petito, welcome, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me, and welcome back to the United States. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, good to be back to uh, flushing toilets and hot showers. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mantra these days. I didn't realize how, how important they were, but there you are. So, um, so, Sam, you and I are from the same part of the country, Colorado. you from Durango, Colorado. And right. I'm from uh, another part on the other end of Colorado, which we won't name because nobody would ever have heard of it. So, <laughs> welcome to the show. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about your background, because you kind of have, have an interesting background, Sam, and I know you're former law enforcement, so let's just talk about your journey. Okay. Well, I, you know, I became a private investigator after nine years as a city cop here in Durango, and I kind of ended up as a cop in a left-handed way. It's not a job I ever considered. Um, I went into the Navy when I was 17, ended up going to Annapolis, and then after I got out of the Navy, I had a long string of jobs where I found them interesting and challenging, but not fulfilling. You know, I did project management, I did training. Uh, for a while, I was putting computers on submarines in Hawaii, which is 
probably wow. the best job that I had in, in terms of locale. Um, and then when it was time for me to leave Hawaii, I was looking for a place to go either by the ocean or in the mountains and ended up in Colorado. And, and I kind of got into law enforcement through spearfishing in Hawaii. One of the guys that I fished with a lot was a 20-year Honolulu PD guy. And he said, um, you know, would you be interested in becoming a cop? Because I'd gotten laid off from my computer job. And, you know, I, I couldn't get another computer job out there because there was really tough competition. So he said, how about yeah. become a cop? And I said, that's not something I ever really thought about. And he said, well, you should try it. And, and, and in Hawaii, there are not a lot of really good jobs to get, but that's certainly one of them, at least on Oahu. Mm. And I went through the process, mm-hmm. and in the end, I didn't get hired, I think, just because I'd only lived there for about three years. And it's a very transient population there. So if you haven't been there at least mm-hmm. five years or you're, you're not homegrown, usually they won't pick you up. So uh, they said no to me, but going through the process actually got me interested. And then I ended up moving to Colorado and put myself through a police academy over in Colorado Springs. And wow. uh, Durango was the first place to offer me a job. I, I got hired in Colorado Springs once, but they canceled their police academy. And then I got an offer down here, and I said, sure. Because you know, Dur- Durango, is a, it's a four-season tourist destination. It's a great place to live if you like being outside. And that was a big part of the yeah. appeal to me. Um, but, but also, I don't know if you know this from being over on Rocky Floor, but there's a lot of crime in Durango. I mean, I had a really is good time as a cop. Yeah, there's tons going on here. Lots of, lots of drugs and lots no of violence. Kidding. And I think just, be, yeah, nighttime Durango is a completely different place from daytime Durango. And I work I would weekend not nights almost the whole time. Was, uh, yep, yep, it's, it's a lot well, different. And, and of course, you know, um, so of course. it's a good place to, to start a, and learn about investigations. And for those people who haven't connected Durango, that's the location of Mesa Verde. Which uh, yep. Mesa Verde is about is a great, 45 minutes great west here. Location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a great the Hope I Hope I Indian um, location in Mesa Verde. It's a great place to visit if you haven't ever done that. And uh, the only thing I remember about Durango was our car broke down there. <laughs> we all the well, went out of our it, car, it, and I was uh, about eight months pregnant. <laughs> oh wow! So well, it's it's certainly not the kind of place. It, it's not a place that you end up by accident. You have to want to come here because we're the big show for probably three or four hours in any direction. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And so how many years ago was that now? That you uh, I came, came to Durango in 2006 and started, I started with the Durango Police Department in 2006 and worked until 2015. Okay. All right. And then you broke out. You escaped the police department and decided to come to PI. How did that happen? Well, um, it, it was, uh, I'll say my fault is probably the best way to put it. Um, during the time that I was a cop, I worked patrol. Um, I, I worked SWAT. I got a dual-purpose canine and worked a dog for five years, and I was wearing all of those hats at the same time at the end. I was running the SWAT team. I was the only dog in the county for several years, and I still had to do all my regular cop stuff in addition to try and maintain a a personal family life. So I I took on too much, and Mm -hmm. I got burned out. So when it was time to go, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to stay here, and 
this is kind of like Hawaii. It's a tourist destination, but not a lot of really good paying jobs. I didn't want to go back to doing database administration. And even though that can be lucrative, I want to sit in front of a computer for the rest of my life. I like being face-to-face with people. I like going different places, mm-hmm. having a different experience every day. I don't like the, the predictable, I guess. Um, and, right. you know, I, I almost I almost got into being a PI on a lark, you know. Um, I, I don't really remember at this point why I decided to do it, but it was something that I could do almost, I guess I was looking at it as a transition into whatever my next real job was going to be because I had never mm-hmm. met a private investigator and all I knew about PIs was what I had seen on TV in the movies, which turns out to be almost completely false most of the time. Right, I, exactly. I decided to do it and, um, you know, what I, what I got into pretty quickly was criminal defense because um, one of the attorneys that I had met before I got my canine was also a search and rescue canine handler. And um, we, you know, we maintained a, a dog relationship, I guess you could say, through the course of the time that I had my dog. And when she found out that I was leaving the police department, she asked if I'd be interested in doing criminal defense work. And I wasn't sure, but I was sure that I had a mortgage mm-hmm. that I needed to pay and mouths that I needed to feed. So um, mm-hmm. I dipped my toe in the pool and eventually jumped in. Interesting. You know, so was that, did you feel any kind of a conflict going from law enforcement to criminal defense? Absolutely. But but I realize now I was lied to as a cop. You know, as a cop, <laughs> you're told every criminal defense attorney out there is a snake. They'll do anything they can mm-hmm. to get their mm-hmm. despicable clients off the hook and keep them out of trouble. And I found just mm-hmm. the opposite. And when I've when I've told that to attorneys that that's what cops are told and what cops think about defense attorneys, the, the attorneys like they haven't actually laughed at me yet. But they're like, wait a minute, you think I'm going to risk my license to practice law to keep some guy who we both know is selling meth from going to prison for selling meth? Right. No, that, that's yeah. not our job. Our job is to make sure that the police do their job. And you know, in some cases, the attorneys will tell us. We know that he did it. He admitted that he did it. We're just going to try and get him five years instead of ten years. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's that simple. That's that's the focus of my work right. is to try and get the person the shortest possible time in prison, not to not to keep them out. Because I really, you know, yeah. I, I look at my job now in in a way that when I and when I explain it to cops, a, a lot of my a lot of my friends that I worked with, I've still been able to stay in touch with, even though I didn't know if that would be possible when they found out what I was doing. But when I explained to them, my job as a criminal defense investigator, all I do is exactly what you would do as a police patrol supervisor if you had unlimited Mm -hmm. time to review reports Mm -hmm. and make sure that all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted. And Mm -hmm. it's really an unfair advantage, I think, that we have doing defense work because, honestly, Francie, the only questions that I usually get from attorneys are, do you need more time? And do you need more money? Yeah. They don't care yeah. how long it takes. They just want it. They want a thorough investigation, and they want to know. They want to know good facts. They want to know bad facts. And, you know, we're we're honest with all of our exactly clients. Right. We say, look, you may go for a long time, or you may not. But you know, you, you did this to yourself, basically. Um. So so yeah. And and, and I guess really, to, for, for, you there? 
cut out. I was just going to say, for, for a, I guess for a more specific answer to your question, before I started doing criminal defense, I called a retired cop that I knew from another part of the state who had started doing it, ah. and I said, Dave, how, how did you justify going from being a cop to working criminal defense? Because I'm pretty open-minded, and he seemed like a reasonable guy. And he said, Sam, mm-hmm. when you were a cop, were you ever sued or in a shooting? Because if you were, you understand that when you need a lawyer, you need a lawyer. And even if you didn't do anything wrong, you still need a lawyer. And as soon as he said that, it was like the switch flipped. And I said, well, yeah, I've I've been in those situations. And I understand exactly what you mean. I really needed a lawyer when I needed one. And I I think Mm -hmm. I can do the same thing for these people that, that my lawyer did for me. Well, you know, our job and criminal defense attorney's job really is to protect the person's constitutional rights, if you really can boil it right down to that, and to to protect their rights in the best possible way. And, you know, I agree with you, Sam. What I have found, and I've been doing this 30 years now, that at least the attorneys that I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's attorneys out there that are sleazy. I'm sure there's attorneys that pull all kinds of... uh, things that they shouldn't be doing and aren't ethical, blah, blah, blah. But the attorneys that I've worked for are probably the most ethical people I know. And, it, yeah. and it's not the defense attorneys that are causing the problems, frankly. And, I, and it's unfortunate that I think that, um, but that's been my experience. Is, uh, you know, it's, it's often the prosecutors that are withholding information that are, are uh, doing, doing things with witnesses that we would not be allowed to do as defense investigators, telling them things right. that we would not be allowed to tell them. So it's really interesting to me, because there is that, you're right, there's that general perception out there, not just from people in law enforcement, but the general public. And that's yeah. not been my experience. So, and, and, you know, it's here, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in southwest Colorado, so it's pretty rural. There's only about 20,000 people in the city and only about 50,000 people in this county. But it, it, even though we're talking about five-digit population, it's really the community where everybody knows everybody or knows someone else who knows everybody. So this is not a place, like as a cop, I never saw or heard anyone even whispering, you know, in terms of cops about framing people or carrying around throw-down drugs or throw-down mm-hmm. weapons. You know, that's, that stuff may happen somewhere else, but it doesn't happen here because... Everybody knows way too much about everybody else's business here, and I don't think anybody <laughs> would be able to keep their mouth shut, much less choose to keep their <laughs> mouth shut. Now, now I've heard defense investigators and attorneys from over in Denver, in Colorado Springs, there are some of them over there, they genuinely believe that every cop lies, every cop lies in their report, every uh, cop lies on the stand. Uh, Every cop lies about everything. So that, that's kind of the yeah. other extreme over there. So right. I mean, down here, people certainly make mistakes, and I've done it myself, but I, I have yet to see, whether from the, the law enforcement side or the criminal defense side, I've yet to see an officer intentionally doing something to try and jam up a suspect and get them sent to prison because the cops here operate on the same premise that that the defense attorneys do. You know, cops are like, wait a minute, you think I'm going to carry around some cocaine in my pocket all the time, 
so I can stick it in right. your pocket and send Francie to prison so that I get a good yeah. felony arrest stat, and you think I'm going to risk yeah. not only my, my job, but my career, my house, which you're going to own after I get caught doing that to you, and I'm probably going to go to mm-hmm. prison on top of that. I'm not doing that. You know, if, if I can't catch you today... I'll catch you tomorrow. You know, if we had if we had the right fifteen hundred people in jail here all at once, there'd be no crime at all. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's that kind of environment, you know. If 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 we have a stolen car in town and it's not some drunk person that forgot that they parked three blocks over, if if we have a true stolen car, there's there's times when we'll go to one, you know, like as an officer, we go to one particular house and just spiral outward from there. And one out of every three or four times, we would find a stolen car within several blocks of that house. Because it wasn't people stealing the car to piece it out and make money. They're just drunk, lazy people that don't feel like walking 10 blocks from downtown back to their house. And they like lifting cars and driving them home. It's it's like a a self-serve taxi service. Well, you know, Sam, being from a small town myself, uh, I can see how the the police department can function very well. Uh, but I certainly can't get my head around being a private investigator in that same kind of community. So how does how does that work? Because I would think that would be um, kind of a, an issue. Well, it, it works pretty well. I mean, I, I certainly use a conflict checklist because there are times when I get offered a case and I'm, the very first thing I have to do is find out who the defendants are because... A lot of the mm-hmm. people that I could represent now are people that I arrested three or four or five years ago or ten years ago. Right. So, um, right. And, you know, so I, I've got to let the attorney know that. But, but just in terms of being in a small place, I've found that uh, collaboration with the other investigators down here is, has been very, very helpful. And maintaining the relationships that I had with some of the people at the police department has been very helpful. And kind of educating them about what not just I'm doing, sure. but what defense attorneys do and, and kind of opening their eyes to the fact that it's not really us against them. We're all working for the mm-hmm. same goal to make sure that someone right. who made a bad decision and got caught is going to be treated fairly. You know, that, that's really mm-hmm. what we're all after. I'm not, I'm not trying to undo good police work or find loopholes, but if the loopholes are there and I find them, that's, right. That's not right. on me. That's you know, it's the officer's job to make sure that the case is solid, and the DA's job to make sure. You know, basically, they've got to prove the person right. is guilty. We don't have to prove the person is innocent. Um, and in That's terms right. of being in a small That's town, right. it's really nice to know that you know I have good relationships with the other investigators here, and and a lot of them. So, I mean, half a dozen of them. Go ahead. And how many, and you said half a dozen, there's half a dozen investigators there in, in uh, Durango? Yeah, but, well, there's, there's 10 or 12 here, but there's about half a dozen of us that work together on a regular basis because we all specialize and, and are willing to work together. Some of, some of the investigators here have decided that they would rather just do their thing and, you know, be a, a one-man show and kind of keep to themselves, which is okay. But um, I've, had, I've had really good results in... Um, not just referral business, but in being able to take on larger cases that I would have to say no to as a one-man operation because mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. good relationships already established with some of these other investigators. 
Yeah, and we're going to talk about that some more, Sam, because that's really going to be the topic of our, our conversation today. So let's take a quick break, and, uh, you know, we have to talk, have to give time to our commercials. So we'll be right back with Sam Petito. Okay. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi, my guest today is Sam Petito. Um, he's an investigator from Southern Colorado, Durango, Colorado. Um, Colorado is where I grew up, so I have a special heart there. And uh, Sam is a former law enforcement. Well, today we're going to talk about now a licensed private investigator in Colorado, and we're going to talk about competing versus collaborating. So you were just saying, Sam, how you work with uh, about a half a dozen investigators there. And there is that issue of private investigators competing about each with each other. Let's talk about that. Tell me your thoughts. Okay, well, I thought it would be a good idea for me to meet everyone doing the same thing that I'm doing because there's only about, I guess when I got started, there were maybe only a dozen licensed investigators in this corner of the state. And I wanted to meet everybody, Uh find out who they were and what they could do, like what their specialties were, and let them know who I was and what I could do and what I couldn't do and then see if they were interested in working together. And uh, I've had a mm-hmm. chance now to get face-to-face with everybody who's licensed 
And since then, some of the people I have uh, no other contact with, some of the people I stay in touch with but don't do a lot of work with, and there's about four or five other investigators who I deal with pretty often. And um, the way it works is, like, I specialize in criminal defense and canine expert witness work. So if I get a call for a surveillance job, surveillance doesn't interest me at all. But a couple of the other investigators here really like surveillance, and they're good at it, which I found out I'm not. Um, So I'll, I'll give the job to them or sometimes sell the job to them and just let them take it because these are all people that I know can do a good job. And I like, I like working with a fee agreement because if, if you call me and say, hey, Sam, I need surveillance in Southwest Colorado, and I say, okay, why don't you call Mark or call Denise or call Linda, you'll do that. They'll do a great job for you. Mm-hmm. And the next time you need surveillance here, you're not going to remember Sam gives great referrals. You're going to remember Mark or Denise or Linda did a great job for me and call them and, and I'm out of it. Um, but fr- from a business standpoint, I realized I wasn't capturing a lot of potential income that I could have been by using fee agreements with other investigators. So if I give, you know, if, if I have a job that's going to be a two or three day surveillance job down here, I'll call somebody that's one of my associates and say, are you free? Can you handle it? Are you interested? Here's what the money is like. Here's the percentage that we already have set up in advance in a fee agreement, would you like it? Or would you just like to buy the job from me for a flat fee? And sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, but it's usually pretty easy because I realized early on I was, I was giving away a lot of work that I didn't want, but a lot of the inquiries going to these other investigators happened to be funneling through me, and I realized that I could just as easily take a piece and still get a good job done for that potential client as I could simply refer a stranger on the phone over to one of my competitors and give them the money that I either didn't want to make or, you know, wasn't, wasn't interested in the job. But um, everything that we do is not fee-based, but with, with several of the other investigators here, that's how we trade work back and forth. And it works out really well because some of them don't like doing criminal defense. Some of them don't like doing surveillance. Some of them don't like doing family law or child custody stuff. Some of them don't like doing insurance cases. So we all kind of have uh, specialties, even though we're in a small community here. And we also trust each other. So Linda knows I'm not going to try and take advantage of her. Mark, I know Mark's not going to try and take advantage of me. All, all the people that I have as my associates here, I trust. I meet with on a regular basis. And we don't just talk about cases. We talk about, you know, have you learned anything new interesting about investigating mm-hmm. or about, mm-hmm. you know, the changes in the law here in Colorado or changes in federal law? Like, you know, NCISS is involved in lobbying on a national level. You know, I'm an NCISS mm-hmm. member myself. Sometimes I'm giving information to the other investigators here that's useful to them, but they would probably never hear about because they've chosen not to be a member of NCISS right. or NALI or, or PPIAC. Right. So it's good for information sharing, and it's good to maintain that relationship because if I get a call to do a big job and I need round-the-clock surveillance in a town with 17,000 people, that's not easy to pull together. But um, <laughs> I'm in the position where I can do it. 
Yeah, well, I, but, but I'm in a position where I can do it. Even though we're a small town, yeah. I can do it because of these relationships and the trust that we already have in place. And I can set mm-hmm. up a schedule with these people and we can actually pull that off. And, and that's a job that otherwise, not only would I have to pass on, there's no one down here that can, that can pull together a team of four or five or six surveillance operatives to work on around-the-clock uh-huh. surveillance. And that kind of thing doesn't happen too often, but I, I said no to two jobs like that before I realized I could start saying yes. I just needed to get my ducks in a row first. Okay, I have some questions about that, but before that, we probably ought to explain these acronyms that you were using. So NALI is the National Association of Legal Investigators, which is a national association of people that do plaintiffs, um, personal injury, and criminal defense. And then NCISS, right. National Council of Investigation and Security Services, is the national organization who protects our interests in Washington, D.C. And uh, if there's bills that we're concerned with or things like that, uh, NCISS does address those. So I thought I'd just cover that. And, of course, TTIC, we've already talked about. That's the local uh, Colorado uh, private investigators association. So, uh, so I'm interested in how this works because I've never, I've never heard of selling a case for a flat fee. But we'll come back for that. So, um, so do you manage if you refer a case to say Mark or or you said Linda? Uh, do you manage the surveillance or do you uh, kind of manage in the background the case or how does that work? No. When I had employees, I had a couple investigators working for me. When that was when that was the situation, I oversaw everything. But I let my employees go because the the need for um, having several people on staff it, it kind of evaporated in the last twelve to eighteen months. Um, but but they're now investigators on their own who I do contract work with instead of W two work. So mm-hmm. if if I have a job, let's say I get a I don't know, a request for process service. Denise Wallace is my mm-hmm. go-to process server. She used to be an investigator for me, and I can't really make any money on process service unless it's somebody from out of town, like if someone calls me from Dallas and says, we need to find this person, we have to find them in the next four days, and we have a $750 budget. That's mm-hmm. an opportunity for me to make some money and also let Denise make a good amount of money doing process service. Um, not every right. job is easy, as you know, but um, but then sometimes, like if I if I get a I don't know, a multi-day surveillance, and let's say I give it to Mark or Linda, wh- whoever it is that I offer it to, um, if if the expected duration of the job is going to be, let's say, fifteen hundred dollars worth of hours or twenty-five hundred dollars mm-hmm. worth of hours. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just say, hey, here's this job. Would you like it? If they say yes, then we'll agree on the fee, which I will talk about later. And then I just hand it off to them and I say, here's the number of the, of your new client. Call them up. Tell them that I gave you the job and it's all yours. So I, I don't oversee it at all because all of these associates that I work with, these are all long-term professional either private investigators or law enforcement people in their background who have become private investigators. So it's turnkey. You know, I, I don't have to I don't have to oversee anything because first of all my name is not on the report that goes to the client, but also because right. these are people who I trust to um provide a referral to because I, I think 
what I told you before about how you'll never remember that I give good referrals. You'll just remember the investigator I referred you to did a good job. I think the opposite Mm -hmm. is not true. If I give you a bad referral, I think you're always going to remember my name because I referred you to someone who did a bad job or or tried to rip you off. So that's why I try and only, if I'm going to connect a potential client with an investigator, it's someone that I would trust as my own investigator if my neck was on the chopping Mm -hmm. block and I needed somebody to work on my behalf. That's the only people that I'll sell jobs to or, or give them away to. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the key word is trust, trust in your relationship with them, because I think that is exactly right. If you somebody gives some uh, referral to somebody that turns uh, doesn't turn out well, they're going to remember your name specifically, yep. and then they don't remember it if you give a good referral. It's really a kind of an odd conundrum, but, um, but that's great that you have that kind of working relationship, um, because... I, I guess you don't feel like you need to control it because you have people that you can trust and rely on to do a good job. Right. And, and I make it clear to the potential client that I'm just going to refer them to a competent investigator with experience in the area that they're seeking. And I make it clear that the reason I'm doing it, it's not because I don't want their work. It's because I don't do that particular kind of work that the potential client is looking for. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's a, that makes a good impact on people because if, if you as an attorney call me from Sacramento and say, I need something done in terms of surveillance up at Purgatory, I'll mm-hmm. say no, but let me give you my surveillance person. What I do is criminal defense. It's completely possible, and I've had this happen where not necessarily that attorney, but someone who is in this area, even if it's just in Colorado, knows that attorney and says, hey, I'm looking for an investigator for a criminal defense case. Do you know anybody out here? Because I don't like the person I'm using. They'll remember, yeah, call mm-hmm. Sam. He's in Durango. So I, I've gotten a lot of work that way just by, by being honest with people and telling them that I'm the wrong person for their job and turning down the business, but, but plugging them in with someone who can do what it is they're looking for. Well, and also, Sam, what you've addressed somewhat indirectly is uh, specialty. You know, you specialize in criminal defense. Uh, somebody else specializes in surveillance. I am always concerned when I see somebody's uh, an investigator's profile where they do everything but the kitchen sink. They do surveillance. They do criminal defense. They do corporate work. They do personal injury. You know, maybe a polygraph examiner. They do everything you can imagine. And I think, and I avoid, actually, if I'm looking for an investigator in another area, I avoid ha- uh, contacting somebody that does everything because it makes sure. me wonder if they can do anything well. Yep, and, and, and that's why I only do criminal defense and canine expert witness work because I'm honest with people. I'll tell them I stink at surveillance. It, it, it's, it's harder for me to follow somebody around in my personal car than it was for me to follow them around in a, a giant SUV that said police down the side. I've, I've lost more people doing private surveillance than I ever did as a cop. It's embarrassing. But, you know, it, it didn't take long for me to realize this is not something I should do, so I'll stay out of it. And, and pe- I think people appreciate that, you know. Um, it, it's the well, same thing. Well, like the other the, thing like is... In, in, I, I I totally agree with you on surveillance. I can't sit still long enough. <laughs> I can't stand to sit still. 
Yeah, and I know, like Colorado, Colorado is a no-fault divorce state. So when people call me and ask if I'll watch their spouse for them because they think they're cheating, I talk everybody out of hiring me because I tell them it doesn't matter if your spouse has several other romances going on. That's not going to help you at all in your divorce settlement. That's what a no-fault mm-hmm. state is. Take the money you're going to spend on me and go get yourself an attorney and get divorced. And you know, don't waste your money with me because an investigator is not what you want. You need you need a you need a divorce lawyer, not an investigator. Well, not only that, but they often don't believe the investigation anyway. You know, <laughs> I always tell them, you know, if, if you suspect your spouse is cheating on you, they might be cheating on you, but uh, you're right, it's not going to do any good to um, find out for sure. Maybe it makes you feel better that you know for sure, but it probably won't. <laughs> so... Yep. I don't know. It's, and, um, and that's how what I don't like is that if, if, I, if I follow them around for a week and don't get any evidence, they think I stink at my job. And I have to tell people, look, you know, I'm not saying that your spouse isn't cheating on you. I'm just saying that unless they're, unless they're doing it at their workplace or at the grocery store or at the gym, they didn't cheat on you this week because I followed them for 50 hours. And, you know, they went to work, yeah. they went to the gym, they went to the store, and they went home. So I'm not saying that you're not yeah. being cheated on. I'm just saying that I can't get, you know, I can't make proof. That's, that's the way it goes. I can only follow them around and document what happens. Right. I can't make them exactly. do anything. Yeah, exactly right. We need to take another break, Sam. We'll be right back. Okay. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. So Sam and I were just uh, discussing collaboration a little bit, but before we get involved in more of that, how do you uh, how do you determine if you're going to? I guess you must refer a case based on a, a percentage with the people you're working collaborating with or working with. Yes, Is that we have a written. Yeah, we we have a written fee agreement that my business attorney drafted for me, and it's just a simple ten percent. Sometimes it's a flat fee. It just depends on the nature of the job and what we think, what, what we agree is going to happen in the future. But 10% is generally the, if it's a one-off, it's just 10%. Yeah, okay. And so when you mention uh, having them buy the case from you or you selling the case from you, that's a, that's a flat fee situation. That's what you're talking about. Is that right? Right. Yep. And, and a lot of times that's appealing to the other investigator because... Let's say it's a $2,500 job up front, mm-hmm. but we both know from just the details that we've gotten from the prospective client, there's the potential that that prospective client not only can afford more work, but is definitely going to need more work because maybe the potential client mm-hmm. needs some education about what kind of work they're going to need and what it will take. Sometimes I'll just say, okay, for 500 bucks, that's a little more than the 10%, but if you think that you're going to make $8,000 off of this job, you get to keep all the rest of that. Instead of me getting 10% mm-hmm. of your $8,000, i will take a flat 500 and if you make a million dollars on the job, mm-hmm. more power to you. It's, it's your, all the profit is yours afterwards. And the relationship you have with the other investigators, there, there's no pushback on that. Um, you, have, you have that kind of a, of a relationship with them, right? Right, because we, we have the fee agreements in place at a time. And, and some of the investigators that I work with don't want to do that, and that's okay. And some of the investigators that I work mm-hmm. with do want to do it, and that's good too. You know, because mm-hmm. I think it's good for all of us because the, the people that I have fee agreements with, everything else being equal, the people that I have fee agreements in place with are my go-to people. If they say no because they don't like the job or they're busy for whatever reason they can't take mm-hmm. it, then I'll go to the other investigators and ask them if they want it. And if they want to pay me for the job, okay. And if not, I just give it to them because I'm kind of, I don't want to spend an infinite amount of time trying to come up mm-hmm. with a finite amount of money just for being a middleman. You know, I just assume give it to right. them, exactly. continue to have a good relationship with them and know there's potential that in the future they'll want to sign up to have a back and forth because it's the same way. If they want to sell me a job, sometimes I'll buy it from them um, either for a percentage or a flat fee. It's a two-way street. Interesting. So now um, I'm interesting because I have, in the past couple of years, I've had to uh, get investigators from other states across the country uh, to not only locate people but to do interviews, to pull records. How do you work those kind of relationships? If, if I was going to handle something like that, I would most likely go to, like if it was somewhere far away in the state, I would go to PPIEC and find a member who I either already know that lives there or use a referral from our organization. Same thing with Nally. If I needed someone, you know, if I need someone in the Bay Area, I would just call you and ask you. But if I need someone in Boise, Idaho, where I don't know anyone, I would go through Nally, Uh find a Nally member, and 
call them up and see if they want the job. I would, I would broach the subject of buying it or percentage, but if they say no, just like I was talking about before, I would just give them, I would just give them the business simply because I know by virtue of being a NALI member, they're going to be a responsible, trustworthy investigator for this potential client who I don't want. Mm-hmm. And and I mm-hmm. I won't just want to connect the person and get that case moving on. If I can make some money off of it, great. If I can't, that's fine too. Because honestly, I have more work than I can handle. I'm always busy. So any of these right. referrals that I can do on a fee basis, it's additional yeah. income. You know, it's just an additional income stream. It's like teaching firearms at the police academy. It's an extra money that I make through the course of the year but not money that I have to count on because I'm, I'm, I'm constantly taking on new cases and, and getting old cases closed and pushed out the door. Mm-hmm. And if you have to hire somebody in another state to do a job, do you uh, work out a subcontract rate with them? Well, normally, I, don't th- I haven't had to do that yet. Any out-of-state work that I've had to do has come to me through Alternate Defense Council, and because that's a state contract that I have, they pay me. If I need to go to Phoenix to interview a witness to a murder that happened up here, the state pays me to go down there. I don't have to sub it out. In fact, with ADC, I'm not allowed to sub it out. Um, but but I've, I've found that the, I, try and, I try and get too involved in keeping other people doing what they're supposed to do, so just from a, a mental relief standpoint, it's easier for me to just give the job away to someone in another place and not try and stay in the middle of it. If I can, if I can make some money up front just for providing the opportunity and the connection between investigator and potential client, I'll take advantage of that opportunity, but I don't spend a lot of time trying to squeeze money out of brother and sister investigators because that's not what I'm about. I make plenty of money yeah. doing what I'm doing. Right. Um, this other stuff is just, you know, it, it's a good way for everyone to profit and in what we're doing and to keep those relationships that I like having in place. So how do you get around the, the state licensing laws? Like, for instance, Arizona, uh, you have to be licensed in Arizona to conduct investigations. Do you associate with somebody in Arizona to, to go there and do something? No, but if, if I'm a Colorado licensed investigator and my investigation takes me to another state, I would have to take a look at the laws in those other states. And usually I contact someone from the state organization. I, I save myself right. the, the research and the reading and just ask, what's the deal? Um, but mm-hmm. uh, in general, if, you know, if I can't go, let's say I can't go to California and do an investigation there under my license then I would explain that to the attorney. And that becomes the attorney's call. If mm-hmm. they want to they sub mm-hmm. someone else over there, they can. Or if they want to ask me, do I know someone? If I do, I'll help them. If not, maybe they want me to find someone for them. Maybe they want to do it on their own. But that, that's, that's not the kind of problem that I come up against too often because I've got my hands full just yeah. trying to handle four or five counties in southwest Colorado. Yeah, you know, I just I mentioned to you offline that I'd gone to uh, Missouri, um, to, to interview a witness, and that's exactly what I had to do. I, we called the licensing uh, authority there, and they said, "Well, it's got to be you've got to associate with a licensee in Missouri, which 
we did. John Eklund is who I associated with. And he was great. And uh, he went with me. I was able to do the interview, but he was right there making sure I did it right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, no. uh, so within the Missouri law and all that. But, um, but yeah, a lot of states will have you do that. Some states won't, won't even allow that part, though. But uh, I think most of them do it at this point in time. We're so global. Now, you almost have to have some kind of a process where you can work with an investigator in that state. Yep, and, so, and I'm not you know, sure I really understand from a... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I don't understand yeah. the difference between me, between me calling you in California and interviewing you and me going to California to interview you. I mean, if, if my license oh. is good while I'm sitting here in my office in Colorado to talk to you about a case and you're in a different state... I don't understand why it would be any different for me to physically enter that state and sit in your living room and interview you, but you know, it is what it is. Well, the reason is because the the regulatory authority has no jurisdiction over you. That's the problem. Oh, okay. And you're okay. in another. You're in their state, so that that's the issue, and uh, and they're pretty careful about that. They're really pretty careful about that. So, um, and some states, you know, like I say, some states are are more. Uh, legally oriented than others. But um, having said that, though, we, you and I were talking offline about uh, co- other collaboration that you do besides referring work. And you were talking about that a little bit. So um, if you have, uh, have you had a situation in a criminal defense case, for example, that you had to hire one of the other people in the city to interview a witness or something like that? Well, with private criminal defense cases, yes, I've had to do mm-hmm. that a couple times where the, the attorney calls us last minute and says, I need these 12 people interviewed and I need it done in the next seven days. So you know as well as I do, just <laughs> finding those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and, and luckily so far, I'm, I'm knocking on wood as we speak. I haven't had anybody give me that. But when, you know, when they do, I try and set a realistic expectation with the attorney and say, look, You've got to understand, maybe we can do this, maybe we can't. But when, you know, when that's happened with a private case, I'll call everybody. And, you know, because we're all busy, and I'll say, can anybody help me with this? And if they can, they can. And if they can't, you know, a lot of times it, it will work out to where I've just got to rush around and do stuff because no one has a case that they can drop at that minute. But one of the benefits of having half a dozen associates is that usually, you know, if I just had if it was just you and me and if i can't help if i can't do it i ask you for help most of the time you're probably going to have to say no to me but with a half a dozen people it helps me spread out mm-hmm. that workload so wh- whether it's mm-hmm. multiple interviews on short notice or staffing a you know not around the clock surveillance but like a 16 hour a day surveillance it's very easy now maybe Lacey can't do it on Wednesday, but Mark and Denny's can. And Linda can't work on Thursday, but she can work on Monday and Tuesday. So I've I've been able to I've been able to do a good job for attorneys that have hired me on a multi day, all day surveillance just because I could reach out to these people and say, I need some help. Are you free? If so, when? How much do you want to make? Here's what the budget is. Do you, you know, do you have, if we need any kind of specialty equipment, do you have that or do you need to borrow mine? You know, what, what do I need to do to help you do a good job for me and, mm-hmm. and by result, this attorney that I'm working for? So, it, um, and it doesn't happen too often, but it's very nice to not have to lose that potential income 
in saying no to an attorney because it's a job that's too big. Really, there are not a lot of private investigation jobs that are going to happen in this part of the state that are too big for me and my associates to handle together. Individually, there's a lot of stuff that we can't do, but together, there's there's not anything I can think of we can't do. So you you have an Indian reservation that's close to you, don't you? Uh, several. Yeah, the Southern Utes, so, the Ute Mountain Utes, mm-hmm. and the Navajos are all within twenty to ninety miles of here. Okay, so you you must have to deal with um, that particular population. How do you handle that? Well, e- each of those tribes is a sovereign nation, so um, mm-hmm. it's they have their own set of rules. If if I need to interview someone, let's just say I need to interview a witness who is a Southern Ute tribal member. If I want to go on to Southern Ute tribal property, I need to take a Southern Ute police officer with me. Um, well, process mm-hmm. service is the same way. If you want to serve papers on the reservation, we have to take someone from the tribal police with us. And uh, you, you have know, to Ute, get Mountain permission Utah. from the. You have to get permission from the tribe from tribal council to go on the reservation. No, nope. But I okay. I do need to. Um, let the police know that I'm going there to do it and, and not just where and when, but I have to work it in with their schedule because if they say we don't have anybody available, right. then I sit and wait until they get someone available. But um, okay. you know, the other thing is that if if somebody doesn't want to be served, it's just like any place else. The, it has nothing to do with the reservation. If they don't want to be served, they just don't open the door. And when they peek out the blinds <laughs> and they see my truck rolling up in the driveway along with an SUPD police car, most of the time, the door doesn't yeah. get open and the blinds don't. So I do a lot of my tribal interviews over the phone. Okay. All right, Sam, you know what? We're out of time. Aaron's giving me notices that we need to close the, the uh, program today. It's been delightful talking to you. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Uh, thank you so thank much you. for being on the show. And uh, I love your um, your collaboration with other investigators. I think everybody ought to do more of that. Um, so, again, um, to the rest of you folks, it's PIC Classified. Thank you very much, uh, PI Magazine, for being our favorite sponsor. And uh, thanks, Sam, for being on the show. Thank you, Frankie. Let's do it again. Okay. And, uh, folks, see you next week. It's PIC Classified and Francie Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 